Hello, and welcome to AdLib Heroes. My name is Joey, and I'm a lifelong DM and storyteller. Unfortunately, we aren't at our table today. Anyone out there who's ever tried to organize a game of Dungeons & Dragons knows that sometimes it can be difficult to get everyone together for unavoidable circumstances of real life. And unfortunately, that's happened to us this week. We wanted to make sure we sent something your way, and we'll get back to the story as soon as we can. Because she's got the audio files, I'll let Bev tell you what happens. Bev? This week on AdLib Heroes, we will take you through our session zero, back where it all began, where we created the world which we now adventure in. Uh, cool. Uh, so, styles? Yeah, so uh, the first thing we're gonna kind of be doing today is a practice known as a session zero where we talk about the game. Uh, so there are a couple different ways I run this. Uh, we're doing the one where we're gonna talk about what you guys would like to see in a game and I'm gonna build the game around that. The other version, and we'll do a little piece of this, is if I came to you guys with pitches, so I wanna play this game or this game or this game because normally when I sit down with a group of people, I will offer them multiple games to, to decide which one they would like. Uh, but for, for this, we're gonna kind of build the world together. So I'm gonna be creating what we do out of your feedback when we get to actually playing. Mm -hmm. So kind of the first thing I would like to talk about is styles of game. Uh, so the, the first idea is how big of an effect do we want to have on the world? So do we want to go high fantasy, which is epic heroes who are saving the world. You're going to leave your marks on history. People are going to know your name around the world. Uh, this, again, is something like Lord of the Rings, who by the end, everybody knows who Aragorn and Legolas are in Middle-earth. Or mm -hmm. a Final Fantasy game, where by the end of that game, you are dealing with all the kings of the world and all the queens of the world and everyone's going to remember your name and nobody needs a hero in that final fantasy world again because you solved it mm -hmm. so sword and sorcery is a grittier style where you probably won't change the world even if you do save it uh the forces that control things won't fully bend to your will and no matter what you do, you can only improve small corners or save the world in a hidden way. So this is something like uh, The Witcher or Netflix Castlevania, where the impact you have won't necessarily change things forever. Uh, when I run games like this, I tend to get a little bit into noir. So think like after World War II detective stories, where... You are good people doing good things because I assume you guys want to be heroes. If we want to do a villain game, that's okay. But I've written all of this assuming you guys would prefer to be heroes. Mm -hmm. I'm a villain enough in my own life. Yeah. <laughs> so. Need a break, really. I need a break. Mm -hmm. And I mean, every time TJ tries to play evil, he's just crying the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. I, pu I punched the orphan. <laughs> <laughs> Bev's just like, 
<laughs> menacingly rubbing her hands in the corner. Finally. Do it. Fall. Die. Do it. Do it. <laughs> now eat some meat. <laughs> so those are kind of the two polar opposites and some of the other stuff in style that we'll talk about falls between them. So for example, dark fantasy is do we want to include horror elements? I tend to be a fan of that. So I like putting in vampires and when the undead show up, they're scary. And when demons show up, they're not just different from ogres. They are darker and more menacing and they mean more because they are more intimately tied to evil. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, do we want to include those, those dark fantasy elements? Do we want to start dipping into horror? Is that, uh, sorry, are you going to, are we going through each of these? Uh, I I think we should maybe talk a little bit at this point. Like, do we want to go more high fantasy or sword and sorcery? And do we want to include dark fantasy in it? Um, I like dark fantasy like spice. Mm-hmm. Like I like it sprinkled. I I don't love it, say in a Cthulhu realm where it's so overpowering in the entire right. game. It's fun to play that when you're playing that, but um, playing playing an entire horror campaign is uh a little taxing. Uh, whereas yeah, playing a few horror sessions or involving yeah, like spice, like involving that. I really like the idea of like, yeah, when the undead show up, when demons show up, that doesn't mean that they're always around, mm-hmm. but including that and like you said, just making them, not making them just a bigger ogre is pretty great. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely like playing your strengths too. Like I remember in one of the games that we were playing, like in the in the cave with the Wendigo, I remember like, kind of like being on edge listening to the description was mm-hmm. was very cool mm-hmm. um yeah. but like they were saying like you know if uh if like sanity meters and stuff are going to be like a constant a constant thing that we're dealing with the whole game like mm-hmm. it's we don't want to be playing darkest dungeon yes mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah i, I do that on my own it's fine <laughs> i think um and you'll you probably already know it know this having we've all been at a table together before uh I think the three of us as a cast are kind of goofy. And mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting to watch stories where people, it, you see the spectrum. You've seen them be goofy and fun, and then you watch them in a scarier realm. I think that's a really interesting arc. But if you never get to see the bright side, it's really hard to appreciate that dark. So I'm for bringing it in, but again, in its pieces, which... I know that's something you can do, so. Yeah, yeah, it it means that when we can time it right, we'll make sure that in October we're doing the scariest episodes. Yeah. Cool. The darkest mm. timelines. <laughs> uh, on that comment about, like, our characters, Bev uh, mentioned that, like, you know, like, we kinda, we're kind of goofballs. Like, it's harder to imagine that people would be that people would actually be goofballs when, like, you're just living in hell, basically. <laughs> you haven't watched enough Buffy. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, that said, I am leaning more towards sword and sorcery just because, like, on the whole Buffy tangent, one of my favorite, like, quotes from fantasy is uh, 
the forces that control things will never let things will never let it get better down here. Well, all that we do matters then, or all that all that matters is what we do then. Like, just keep fighting, keep working at it. You can make it better for that guy, right? Like, and I really appreciate that style of game. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it's not that you can't save the world, but it's in like a secret way. You don't know who you, people might not know who you are. Uh, yeah, you won't necessarily become the next king of the kingdom. You become more the king's agent that he sends in, but then he disavows you when. Because mm-hmm. again, if you think noir, right? The mayor of the city depends on the private detective until it's politically inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or even like in the saving the world circumstance, I think of Final Fantasy Tactics in that the main story that everyone knows is actually about a secondary character in the game that's the history of how this peasant became a king and your main character is off fighting all these crazy mystical fantasy battles and actually saves the world but nobody knows about that and he just vanished like five years ago <laughs> like i i i i tend towards the brighter stories of the high fantasy but i'm being swayed to being interested in the sword and sorcery because i think it will have some good challenges and some good dramatic pieces that go Mm -hmm. along with it because it gives um subtle power to the party and the when we do do something big or if we do something big it's even bigger so it's that same kind of like when there's something scary it's even scarier when there's something big in a sword and sorcery it's like oh you saved the world again because it's the high fantasy, you're going to mm-hmm. do it all mm-hmm. the time. Well, and part of it comes down to in the sword, at least the way I run sword and sorcery, I'm sure there's other definitions out there, but it's not that nobody likes you. Like in your in the area you live in, the tavern owners love you. It's just when you want to go get an audience with a foreign king, they don't care who yeah. you are. You need mm-hmm. to prove yourself again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with sword and sorcery with dark fantasy elements included yeah big fan okay and and another point on that like just the examples that were brought up if you look at like you were saying more of like the bright heroic like that doesn't mean that that's absent from the game either right like Mm -hmm. you look at uh stuff like castlevania's netflix and there are bright moments and there are very funny moments and there are very light-hearted moments so light-hearted episodes even it's just it puts in the effort to remind you what the world is like mm-hmm. after they oh you guys had fun for a couple of days so, <laughs> yeah totally uh so the next is kind of questions on the scale of the world we want to play in uh and i've put in the two extreme two extremes so one is a huge world so every week we could be in a new location uh you're constantly meeting new people there it does limit how much npcs or non-player characters can reoccur because Mm -hmm. you've gone somewhere else. So Final Fantasy games tend to do this. Mm -hmm. Every adventure, you're going to the next place. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of contrasting that with a world of intrigue where there are forces that are fighting over the area you're operating in. So you need to worry about your alliances. You need to worry about who you've angered. You need to look at who owes you favors. And again, a huge world tends to lend itself more to high fantasy and a world of intrigue tends to lend itself more to 
sword and sorcery, but there's no reason that you can't mix mix and match. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, Lord of the Rings is a huge world. They don't stay in one place and deal with the same forces. Mm-hmm. I would say I probably feel the strongly, most strongly about this, which is I love playing World of Intrigue games because I tend to play social characters and it feels as big of a consequence as a fight when you have a social faux pas in a world where everybody knows each other. And to me, it raises the stakes on the types of play I enjoy doing. So for me, I really like World of Intrigue. Um, My personal preference is for... Like, I, I tend to lean away from uh, Intrigue, not... not as it's described here, World of Intrigue, it's just I personally don't have a ton of fun with polit- with games centered on political intrigue. Um, not that I don't like social characters or that I disagree with anything Bev just said, but uh, I also always go back to The Lord of the Rings, and there is moments of intrigue in that, but those aren't, and they are even some of the moments that saved everyone, right? Like, uh, But in the end, it is the the characters and like the heroes like fighting monsters or power friendshipping their way to victory um i would be cool with i liked uh, a couple of games you've run previously that were centered in like a large-ish nation or you know along a, a border war or border like skirmishes where like we are still entering new environments but maybe it's all under a collective region still and that isn't to say that every problem can be solved with intrigue but a lot of them can be uh approached from a social stat like standpoint and honestly i like it when that has huge consequences too because i tend to play characters that really lean into those bad consequences for being socially inept (laughs) well and again what we could easily do is there is a home region where you mostly operate and you go on quests outside of your home region, but what you do matters most in your home region. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it'll even be, you'll have two factions that want you to do a different version of the quest, like mm-hmm. like take this and destroy it or bring this back to me. And if you do one, you can't do the other. Mm-hmm. Which, I uh, Riley, any thoughts? Uh, the big thing for me is uh, like, I really like, you know, familiarity, like calling back to like the, the the characters that you've interacted with and like having those interactions, like having consequences. If the world's so huge that like, you know, everyone that you, everyone that you ever meet is like, you're never going to see them again. Like having those in- interactions become, you know, inconsequential seems like a thing to consider. I guess. Well, to, mm-hmm. to put them in another framework. Avatar The Last Airbender is a huge world. Legend of Korra is a world of intrigue. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too, it, I mean, it's about a time frame, right? If we're playing in a world of intrigue, it doesn't mean over time, we don't expect to continue to expand out and expand out to the point where it's like, yeah, there's Gillian, the bartender back in the very first town where we hung out and we go back there and he's exact same or totally different. Mm -hmm. Like I enjoy a progression that's not solely like, I guess that's how I understood it is 
a moving around of it because mm-hmm. I think going to places where the characters have never been again it's just about the different ways to raise the stakes and put these characters in interesting spaces um so if that makes sense it's kind mm-hmm. of what TJ was saying like I definitely want to travel and explore more of the areas that you can create for us but like yeah. Riley was saying I want to call back to people and there's somebody with a funny voice you know it's we are going to that shop every yeah. day and i think i think my i think my initial uh like pumping the brakes on it was just because every time i hear the word intrigue i just think of like oh cool i get to read seven like 75 pages of the politics of westeros <laughs> like no i don't i don't care uh sorry didn't you run world of darkness games forever uh only because that's all my friends would play and mine were always combat games (laughs) that that game sucks for combat only owned d10s (laughs) yeah i think uh a big portion of uh i think that it'll play out really well i think that tj's like really trying to emphasize that like he doesn't want to be like you know politics simulator kind right. of thing yeah and like i'm i'm not saying that you don't include that i'm yeah i'm just yeah i got i get scared of the word injury but, yeah. uh but yeah absolutely i really like the idea of like the home region and being able to make those callbacks to like the places and people we visited but then also getting the chance to explore or having the op- option to just not do that it, like even if it comes up she's like yeah but there's more important stuff going on in our town and that's what we are focused on um well and for the type of games that are more based on uh that deep politics mm-hmm. i don't like using dungeons and dragons because yeah. it models combat in an interesting way but it doesn't model social interactions in an interesting way fair because the thing is I can't beat Bev in a fight unless we're playing D and D. So, uh, and you shouldn't have to be good at it. I can't cast a spell, but I like to play wizards. Right. You don't have to be good at the stuff you want to be in playing the game. Right. If we were playing a game that had kind of the level of of politics that you're uh, you're leaning away from, I would want to play a game with a robust social combat. Right mechanism and there are games out there and the Mm -hmm. thing is the same way that you would describe your hit even if you're not able to pull it off in real life i will let players who are less socially adept describe this is what i want to get across because sometimes those people can't and it's interesting to watch them because i've seen people playing those type of games also learn as the group kind of brainstorms okay if this is what you're trying to get across and this is the person you want to deliver the message to you would do this, this, and this, and we figure out the scene based on the dice rolls. Instead of the D&D, you say it and you make a single skill check to determine. Yeah. So D&D is specifically, in my mind, staying away from those politics because if we're going to play a game with politics, I want it to be multiple meaningful dice rolls. Right. And I think we all said something that I think plays into that is the consequence idea i think that's where we're all kind of leaning is if i freak out and just start slashing a guy yeah that should affect me later than just hop in our airship yeah and head <laughs> yeah so hop far on my away. white chocobo yeah and... <laughs> nobody can can catch me mm-hmm. no so something that is always important to me stylistically 
is the concept of verisimilitude, which is the world needs to be true to itself and internally consistent. So you should start to get a feeling of what to expect from the world. So especially if we're playing a sword and sorcery game that's a mix of, uh, of huge world and world of intrigue, that tends to me to say this should be a more realistic world. Economies should work in a way that makes sense that, you know, if there is a castle, there needs to be enough of a village to support the castle. Right. However, we also have the option of doing a fairy tale world where the world is a strange and mysterious place. Kings can live in a castle where there's no country to support them. Just strange beings can appear in the middle of nowhere. There can be an inn that exists where there's no travelers because it's neat. Mm -hmm. You know, there can be a tiny provincial French village and there is a huge castle in the woods and the guy who spends all his time hunting doesn't know that there's a huge magical castle in the woods less than a day's walk from where he has spent his whole life. Mm -hmm. So we can look at doing fairy tale logic, which can be really interesting. And it means that, again, it's, it's fairy tale logic. We don't need, the king doesn't actually need to be the king of anything. And there can, again, be gritty stories like you've seen The Last Unicorn. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty gritty story, but it's pretty fairy tale logic. There's this king in a castle where there doesn't seem to be a kingdom. It's him and his son. <laughs> and he's a king and that's a castle. There's like, just a traveling circus that it didn't seem like they were actually entertaining anyone. Have this no one brought up the drunk skeleton. The best part of the whole movie <laughs> the is the best part the drunk of that movie skeleton. is that Jeff Bridges plays the hot prince. And, <laughs> and he sounds like a bored high surfer the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, do we want a world that tends to make real world sense where towns are where rivers meet roads and kings need kingdoms to support? Or do we want it to be you come out of the woods and there's a town and nobody knows what everyone in this town does to get enough food and money to get by. But they live there because there's a town here. You're interested in the weirdness of fairy tale world, TJ, but you also don't want to deal with no. the weirdness of fairy tale world. <laughs> no, so I really dig it, but I just, I, I don't want to lose the idea that we were just talking about of like consequences in the world and like right. things can happen right so and in a fairy tale world it's not the local sheriff you piss off it is a nearby ogre king yeah yeah so it might not fit I'm, the world yeah, we've been describing I'm, so far i'm on the fence i think that making a gritty fairy tale uh traveling the region but like it's hard to have again it's hard to have that kind of like factions and like real have you read sorry have you read the comic book fables right yeah that's fair i think something along that line would be really funny i think it could also be that we make the feywild accessible yeah so it could just be in parts of the world exactly when you go through a stone circle and you're in the fey world now fairy tale rules apply but you guys know that existing in the world 
oh crap, the sky is purple. Yeah. <laughs> and some people just live here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, making that like and an entirely different plane of existence. That's, that's yeah, that would neat. be really neat. I have yeah. seen a unicorn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a... I'm not a liar. As <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. well, excited. I, I like the idea that there's especially humans, half elves, and my favorite D D elven race is Eldrin as written in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Right. So not the later version they came out with where their emotional mood changes what season they're in. Eldrin in the Dungeon Master's Guide are always in the same season and they're just a little bit more weird magic than yeah. the high elves. A little more mm. a little more fey touched. Yeah. Yeah, as much as uh <laughs> as much as I would enjoy a consistent adventure time noir might it might yeah, get a little. I mean, it could still get a little like that in the Feywild. Like That's true. the Fey are fickle. That's the whole. Yeah. Thing. Well, and it fits the verisimilitude if we're saying like, when the sky turns purple, you know, mm-hmm. it's fairy tale, tale rules now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you slip through a stone circle? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't think so. There was those rocks around the road. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so the next style question is moral ambiguity. Do we want to worry about basically the random monsters you come across if it's a problem to kill them? So are they like zombies and robots where if you see a goblin, goblins are dedicated to evil. If you see an orc, orcs are dedicated to evil and you don't have to question if it's a problem to hurt them. Or do we want there always to be? So it's not that you won't see evil forces. It's that you can't judge a monster from evil on sight. Mm-hmm. I I really like uh, the moral ambiguity. Like, even if it's just, yeah, the majority of hobgoblins all worship the god of tyranny and strength. So, yeah, I'm not really on board with that, guys. But that doesn't mean that they're all bastards bastard-coated bastards with bastard filling. Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like it too, because the idea would be, for example, you go into a town and they say, oh, there's this hobgoblin, he's been stealing people and killing them and taking them out to his hut. And you go out to his hut, and I think in a lot of games, you just kill him. As soon mm-hmm. as you get there, you create an ambush and you kill him. If that was a human that was accused of being a witch or a serial killer, you as a party would probably go investigate, figure out if it's true, and then decide that you were gonna no, not TJ. But I think <laughs> that's a witch. <laughs> I think I think it's it's fun to it adds more to the story to actually try to figure out monsters' motivations yeah. as much as it is to find out other playable races or however mm-hmm. you want to say it. And again, like some things, like you said, there are evil forces out there, and some things like we Zombie. were just talking about, yeah zombies we were just talking about how these how demons are this like embodiment of evil and destruction and all that it's like yeah well i'm not gonna try to reason with it like unless i'm way weaker than it (laughs) i'm just gonna try to live run the fuck away (laughs) what if it can fly run down (laughs) (laughs) didn't you get a burrow speed isn't that yeah yeah exactly not everyone's playing a worm tj (laughs) Putting that moral ambiguity in does lead to a problem that D&D has started to recognize about racism and coding. Mm -hmm. So there are problems with, for example, 
the coding of orcs because they are savage and violent and a bunch of the aspects that have been traditionally coded to orcs have also been traditionally encoded to uh, to disenfranchise people in the real world. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help that so much of our fantasy comes out of colonial England. So, right. I mean, I can go on and on about the racism of Tolkien. Yes. <laughs> so that does lead to things that we might have to be more careful and more aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this is... Part of the thing in D&D is there are evil gods. And one of the ways I tend to use as a shorthand for these traditionally evil races is they are absolutely dedicated to their gods who are evil gods, which again is not the same as a real world religion because in the real world there is no such thing as an evil religion. Every religion believes it's doing the best for its followers. Mm -hmm. So it becomes difficult and the question is like do we want to recognize that irredeemably evil orcs and irredeemably evil goblins are zealots to forces that are fundamentally and can truly be defined as evil could Mm -hmm. i submit that you include some of the other coded so if there's a bunch of goblins who are zealots to this is there also a human right Hanging out with them. Intermingled goblins and halflings that are all worshipping this. or Right. Because then it's a little bit, as well as, and, and this is a question, do goblins live and, you know, is there goblin monks and clerics to the good gods, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's some of what, I mean, it's not a perfect fix because it's not a perfect system in which we're working. But then the idea comes along that there are evil people whether they're born into evil or they find evil along the road it's not based on something subliminally put into the system that then we have to rectify right well and in one of the games i've been running recently which is uh, a world i'll probably pitch to you guys based on the choices you've made so far uh orcs are specifically cultists of grimish There are no naturally born orcs in the world. The orcs that remain are half-orcs, which are the ancestors of the people who rejected Grumish and his evil. And they are, amongst the world, one of the least likely to be religious groups. When When they are religious, they expect it to be very transactional. So they will make a sacrifice to their god in exchange for this. And if the god doesn't deliver... They never sacrifice to that god again. They end up being... So I've got them coded as chaotic good. They, these half-orcs live in basically Greek city-states. Okay. Anyone who is an orc that is a standard orc is a cultist. They can have originally been any... I tend to say species instead of race. In, right. In deity. They can have started as any species, but they undergo rituals of devotion that turn them into orcs oh that's cool interesting yeah Yeah, big fan Mm -hmm. and they start to whatever dark power kind of turns them into that fades away with generations if they're not following and sacrificing exactly so it'd be so you tend not to be born an orc it's the same way that uh tieflings 
don't necessarily make the deal with the de the devils. Correct. Uh, you could be a naturally born orc if you were basically born into a cult and escaped. However, you would more likely be a half orc, someone who has forsaken Romsh. That's that's a really neat idea. Yeah, mm -hmm. I really dig that. Mm -hmm. So, it, um... and especially like with the different origin for orcs or for like for what the evil races are, it's not just like. like Hey, you're born and your brain makes you want to kill things. Like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas goblins, I really like to make them mostly fae. So they are weird things born out of the fae. Like maybe a hag plants a bunch of goblin seeds in the garden. That's really funny because, yeah, the, the game I was running for these guys, the goblins are, yeah, they just like sprung out of the fae wild one day and like, they're here. Yeah. Are, they, are they evil? I don't know. They, they, they like to drink and fight. They're, they're weird. They're mm -hmm. they're chaotic. Not necessarily evil, but probably degenerates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> so we want morally ambiguous enemies. It is always worth finding out why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, mm -hmm. almost always. Well, or it says something about your party if they don't do yeah. that, and they could do something with a consequence by not doing it. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, cool. So the next section I want to talk about is how common is magic? Uh, so do we want to play where magic is common? In most towns, there's someone who can cast some magic. Commoners may be familiar with some low-level spells. Uh, when you tell someone that there is a villain that disguised themselves with magic, it's not something people question because... They live around magic, so the priest at the local town temple can probably cast maybe second or third level spells. And right. lots of villages have a wizard that lives in them, even if they're only a first level wizard. Mm -hmm. I would say that this is probably the D&D &D standard. Mm -hmm. uh, or magic is uncommon. People know magic exists, but even a first level caster is a rare and terrifying thing. Casters are treated with caution at best and fear at worst. People are not familiar with what's possible of ma what's possible with magic. So when they hear magic's involved, their imaginations can run wild. They think anything is possible as soon as magic's on the table. We could also go with magic is unknown. It is so rare and hidden that most people have never seen it. There are people who do not even believe it exists. Potions would not be available in shops. Powerful clerics might cast third level spells. And people will often act in fear or disbelief when confronting magic. In a lot of ways, I feel like this is where Lord of the Rings is. Because mm -hmm. people question if Gandalf can do magic. And he is one of the premier wizards in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you really look at the spells he casts in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Ring... He might be like a second level wizard. Yeah. Uh, he casts light. Yeah, and it's especially, yeah, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Like mm -hmm. the elves all believe it because they still have minor magicians among them. Right. But like no one nearly as powerful as Mithrandir. No yeah. one nearly as powerful as one of the five wizards, right? Like Hobbits don't believe in it. No one in Bree believes in it. The people of Gondor know something's up. 
mm-hmm. when Gal- when Gandalf shows up in Rohirrim, they're like, you're just a liar and a yeah, portent. Conjurer of cheap tricks. Yeah. <laughs> or we could go completely the other way where magic is mundane. It's so common people use it for minor uses. Magic lights brighten city at night. There's common teleportation circles for people who can afford it. Temples will allow you to store diamonds as <laughs> uh, as insurance in case you die. So. My life insurance policy is literally a way to resurrect me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, again, I would say that there are lots of Final Fantasy worlds that end up like this. Mm-hmm. And there's one of the worlds I'll pitch to you where it's completely based on this, mm-hmm. this idea. So it is very, very high magic, and it tends to lead into what I like to call Magipunk, where it's a little bit like cyberpunk, where... You end up with magic-powered trains and Mm -hmm. magic guns. And you get a little anime when you go into this. Any strong preferences on where magic should be? I personally really like Uncommon. Um, But the only one that I don't super like is Magic is Mundane. Uh, I really appreciate it still being, like, at least kind of weird. Like... Or mo- probably because like the base concept of wizards in D and D and like Lord of the Rings to me is like yeah there's weird mysterious people and in D and D they they've spent their whole lives researching and then when you get into magic is mundane it's like yeah that's like some prep co- school stuff like like yeah. we just rich kids just rich people just send their kids off to magic wizard school and. No one looks after them. They teach them to unlock doors in the first grade. And give them an invisibility cloak when they're 10. Not a good plan. (laughs) I agree. Like, I numbered these, and my number one was Magic is Uncommon. I think it gives players a bit of feel of specialness, but also, Mm -hmm. like you said, there can be some problems. Like, oh, no, that just looked like the king. And, like, everybody else is like, no, that that was the king. And it's like, you might know that there's such a thing as disguised self, but they wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing it leads you to, though, is when you need magical services, it's more difficult to get them. Mm-hmm. So yes, more difficult, not impossible. <laughs> but it means that if you need someone to cast a resurrection spell, it is not the local temple. It is a quest to the important temple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To the grand cathedral in the capital. Yeah. Um so magic is uncommon was my like my number one choice before and then you added um it's not included in the document but you added uh that people because people don't really understand it they'll assume that because someone knows magic that like they can do anything like they really have no idea what they're capable of i super dig them yeah (laughs) and like as someone who's probably going to be playing a marshal like just assuming that if we have a caster they can just do like just ridiculous that, things will be really fun to act yeah, out that's very uh black company yeah, yeah. Like the narrator knows magic exists but doesn't understand it at all so every time one of his like buddies who's a wizard does something he just kind of describes what he sees it's like i don't know what that spell is called what are you talking about <laughs> spells oh. have names yeah what what no i've know. been uh i've been reading black company and that is exactly like the point that i go to when i'm trying to sell people on it's like yeah they don't they don't tell you the spell you're reading along and all of a sudden you're like wait what did i like miss a page and then at the end of it you realize oh it was a spell yeah they explain oh yeah my buddy cast the spell yeah what 
you all definitely want magic as uncommon. So apparently, and we will accept <laughs> the consequences. So later, when we're mad that we can't find a healing potion, you can just go back to this moment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. replay our voices all yeah. saying uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, go ahead. The uh, I would also be interested in playing the magic of science, like the like a whatever you call it, the magic punk. No, no. Magic punk. We yeah. didn't get to science or mystery yet. Oh, next. sorry. Those are yes. those are varying scales on a different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the next question is about how reliable magic is. So is magic a science where spells are formulas that always work as intended? If you do the formula wrong, nothing happens. People with the right knowledge can easily recognize what spell you're casting because it is a formula. So you cast it this way, and this is what happens. The causation and formulas are very predictable. Uh, one of the things I'd describe this as is something like Full Metal Alchemist, mm-hmm. right? where you may not know everything about the magic, but when a alchemist sees something in that, that show, I've only seen the shows, mm-hmm. uh, they understand, oh, you did this, this, and this. Right. Or do we want to go where magic is a mystery? So it's not a predictable force. You can do everything exactly the same and get a different result. Different casters have fundamentally different ways to cast spells. So, for example, if you're looking at a low-level spell like Mage Armor, you might have someone who casts it, and uh, I'm pulling this from Mage the Ascension because I really like the way they did Mage Armor. So you might have someone who casts it, and it means they're incredibly lucky. They sway exactly when they need to sway, and that's how their Mage Mm -hmm. Armor works. Where someone else has a glowing suit of armor around them, and someone else has a force field of entropy that slows down every force coming at them so it doesn't hurt them. So you don't know what spell you're looking at that's keeping that specific wizard from getting hurt. I really like, and I know I keep saying like a blend, but uh, the idea that dedicated casters who had to like go to a school or do research or learn it X way uh, have kind of do all cast it kind of the same way. And that doesn't have to mean that all wizards do it the exact same way, but like all wizards who, you know, went to this transmutation school, all clerics of this deity kind of, it is a science to them. And people, people from Hogwarts understand how other Hogwarts casters mm-hmm. do it, but they may not recognize the exact same spell from Bobaton. And like they might, they might be able to figure it out given, you know, maybe a couple of rounds or whatever. Like, oh, it's it's just a similar thing to like yeah. what I do this. Um, whereas uh, classes like, okay, like sorcerers and druids that it's more about like their connection to either their bloodline or nature. It's just like, I don't know, I do stuff. Like, well, the way I've always uh, read the way that sorcerers now get metamagic because... I first saw Metamagic in 3rd edition where it belonged to wizards. Mm -hmm. But the way sorcerers do it is they're kind of making up the spell. So they've got the Metamagic twin spells so that, well, that's a spell you can only cast on yourself. And the sorcerer's like, "Uh, I cast it on my friends all the time. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, stuff like that. Uh, I really, really dig the idea of sorcerers like not knowing, caring, or like, any not knowing or caring about the rules and wizards barely being able to figure them out but like can i study you 
Do you know how rude that is? <laughs> so I was running a game where one of the central places in it was a magic school for wizards. Right. And one of the characters was an eldritch knight and one of the characters was an arcane trickster. So they both studied at the school. Right. And one of the characters was a sorcerer. And so she was enrolled in the magic school and her teachers got mad at her all the time because she was never paying attention in class. And then the tests would come and she could cast all the spells. Mm-hmm. So it was, again, she she never learned the science of it, but she could get the results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, really, yeah, like you were just describing the metamagic, like it's just them kind of breaking it and like doing whatever they feel like, um, which is enough of that flavor for me to like really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the biggest thing for me is that just being the flavor for the, for like, right. especially a sorcerer. I know that bards also cast with charisma, but they specifically go to colleges. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are still studied. I think so. What I'm hearing, and you can tell me if I'm wrong in what I'm hearing from you, TJ, is like if we want to get down to brass tacks, if you're a wizard, you would like to be able to roll a knowledge arcana check when someone's casting to know what they're casting, unless they're someone weird and wrong. Yeah. And it might be a little harder if they're from a different school or they do things slightly differently or a different nation maybe has different magical traditions. Or I'm super okay with just magic is science, but also there's a couple of these little flavor points. See, and the way that I kind of like to do it within the framework you're describing is certain traditions, it is very much a science. They have figured out how to make things work. Their understanding may not actually be completely true but they can get the results they want. Some of it might be placebo effect, mm-hmm. but it can also mean that someone trying to cast a spell can create weird magic effects and it doesn't have to be like a mad scientist in a lab has a problem. It's a kid finds a spell book and reads too many words and re- releases something bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I bet I'm also interested in what you guys think of that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I hogged that whole dialogue. No, I mean, I think you have a lot of interest in casters and potentially Riley and I aren't as often casters. So I think it's important that your input is in there. I personally, if I'm thinking game mechanics, I really love the flavor of it. I love the idea that someone watching it from a more mundane area will look at it and not see the same spell. It also helps, I think, reinforce that magic is uncommon in the sense that it's people have seen maybe the same thing 17 times, but they've seen it so different. They have no idea that it is all mage armor. You know, they're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that person cast ice, ice wall. It's like, no, it's just someone with the element flavor of ice. So their mage armor looks like that. My question would be, if we're going to do some sort of blend that allows for some of the mechanics to still work, is a critical fail on a spell likely to cause something random and different to happen? I think for an accomplished wizard, it doesn't make sense unless maybe it is a very high level spell. So maybe if they're casting with their top slots. Right. Mm -hmm. Also mechanically, just mechanically speaking, there is very rarely the chance to critically fail on the spell itself. Like you don't, roll to successfully cast like they'll roll to resist or you roll to hit them with it like right and at that point you've already successfully cast the spell right but we could have 
there's some kind of black backlash if someone's saving rolls a natural 20. Yeah, that would be neat. Mm-hmm. Or if you do critically fail, like uh, the actual, mm-hmm. just like blows up in your face or mm-hmm. like the actual just, attack. Yeah, yeah, it's a question where I, and maybe science doesn't mean, I mean, science doesn't mean that doesn't happen. Because mm-hmm. that yeah. happens in science all the time. All the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That, that would be neat. Riley, what do you think? Um, as far as like consistency goes, I think uh, like having it, like um, as much as we tinker with uh as much as we tinker with the flavor of the spells and stuff, like keeping the integral, like how it works, like mechanic wise for us is probably going to be pretty important. Like, so if you take a spell, you know, unless like, uh, don't get me wrong, like I have no problems against homebrewing and stuff, but like, if you take a spell, you would expect it to work the way that it says in the book. Yeah. So my question would be, how would you feel if you come across a wizard from an unknown school who casts magic missile, a very basic spell, but it does lightning damage. Yeah. Everything else about it is the same, but... Yeah, or he casts frostball instead of fireball. Or... I would think, can I learn that? And I would say yes. That no, would you're be... a martial class. <laughs> <laughs> but if I wasn't a dumbass... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think like hard mechanical changes need to be necessary Mm -hmm. just like yeah sorcerers cast spells and it looks weird yeah oh yeah uh flavors yeah flavors so yeah what what we're gonna what we're thinking for flavor then is if within your tradition you can understand it like a science most of the time Mm -hmm. depending on the tradition so sorcerers probably not uh druids will generally understand what another druid is casting Mm -hmm. uh but so for example if you have a spell on your list and you're a wizard and a druid is casting it and they have the spell on their list, you might need to roll Arcana to figure out what spell okay. it is. Cool. Because they're not part of your same tradition. So when they cast Firebolt, they do it a little weird. Mm-hmm. I don't know if druids have Firebolt. I think they might have Create Fire or something. Create, yeah, produce, create, flame. produce Flame. Yeah. That, that makes like... Not only do I enjoy that, that actually like really makes a lot of sense. Like if I was a druid and someone and a wizard was or rather if I was if I was a wizard and a druid was casting my spell, my first thought would be like, dude, where's your book? Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you think again, back to full metal alchemy, when they see people doing alchestry, they understand it right away just by watching it. Mm-hmm. Where we're saying that wouldn't be the case here when a wizard watches a bard cast a spell right. that's on both their lists. It's still weird. Right. Yeah, it's when they see someone like, that's, you don't have a summoning circle, but I recognize that exact thing you just did. Mm-hmm. Like, or uh, an alchemical circle. Or how can you just like snap? Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> don't worry I, about it. I can't do anything in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I uh, yeah, I like, that's a good point. Like, um going into super like mechanical changes and like really deep homebrewing is probably only going to get a few more people lost but um that said i'm super cool with like just yeah that this guy's magic missile does piercing damage for some reason and i probably can't ever figure that out unless i go to his country and go to his school but the rest of the rules shield will still stop it sure Mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. Cool. Super dig that. Uh, so the next question I want to talk about is economy. Uh, I believe that D&D 5th edition has a very broken economy system. By the time you're a level 5 adventurer, you have a hoard of gold and nothing left to spend it on. The best equipment in the book is like 1,000 or 1,500 gold, which again, you will easily have by that mm -hmm. level. Uh, you are so rich, you never need to work again after level 3. And D&D used to solve this problem by the fact that you would then build a castle and recruit followers in 1st and 2nd edition. Or in 3rd edition, you needed to spend that money on magic items, which are no longer for sale in the same way. Yeah. And we'll talk a bit more yeah. about it. But you don't scale anywhere near as high and like the cost doesn't scale up as exponentially yeah. like it did in 3rd edition. So if you are an adventurer, you will end up to being pretty insanely rich. I've run a lot of D&D 5th games to level 20. By the time you hit level 10, there's nothing you can't buy that you might want. What if I'm trying to Scrooge McDuck a tower? That is one of the things that you would do in this sort of game. <laughs> Great. But yeah, you would be able to, uh, you can fill a money bin as a as a D&D standard adventurer, mm. especially because we will probably pay, play through several levels. Yeah. Um, the other version I have that I've been experimenting a little bit is the idea of grittier money. So we throw out a lot of what is written in the Dungeon Master's Guide about how much treasure to award you. We consider that uh, one copper piece has the buying power of a dollar. So when you go to a bar to buy a beer, it's four copper because four dollars buys you a beer in a bar where we live. I think. I haven't been to a bar in... <laughs> A long time. 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I'm old and there was this pandemic. <laughs> so you still make a lot of money as an adventurer because it is a dangerous occupation. Uh, you will probably end up with top of the line equipment still, but you are unlikely to be set for life on a hoard of gold. So I think of it again, going back to I like noir in D&D. So you are private detectives or mercenaries where, you know, you might live off your money for a year and then you need to go do another job. Mm -hmm. I'm a grittier money fan. I love grabbing the lowest common denominators and making a ramshackle. It's like, we've got a barrel, two poles, and so we found these wheels on a broken cart. This is our new wheelbarrow. Like, <laughs> I Yeah, I really like... I like the concept of grittier money, and I'm. Uh, I would be excited to see how you are uh, making it work. Um, that said, part of like why I love D and D is like, hey, fucking cool! I get new loot. That's magic sword stuff like that. But getting it a little slower also seems great. Um, well, and a lot of it comes from in a grittier money game. I still need to equip your enemies. Right. So a lot of times your gear, and again, I think this fits that kind of mid-century spy noir feel. You take what your enemies have and use it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, that guy had a plus one sword. Yeah. A plus one sword? Oh boy. <laughs> well, and if someone has a weird weapon, it's like who has, it's a, it's a good weapon. It's not the weapon I was regularly using, but mm -hmm. I'm proficient. So mm -hmm. now I use a hammer. <laughs> like Yeah. I really, 
I dig that. So the next question that comes up is the magic item economy. So if you have magic items you don't want to use anymore, or if you're looking to buy magic items, how do you get them? So are there magic item shops? They are part of the economy. People open stores to sell magic weapons that they have collected or made. There are potions on the shelf. You go to Diagon Alley and look in all the stores. Or if you've watched Critical Role, the first campaign, there's Gilmore's Glorious Goods, where there's a magic shop they can go in and look through what's on the shelves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or is magic items more of an artisan craft? So they generally need to be commissioned and they tend to be expensive. People don't have magic items waiting on their shop shelves. Instead, you order a specific item you want and months later, the artisan takes the rest of the payment because you made a down payment and sells you the item. The secondary market is small for magic items. Those who can afford them in the first place will generally commission them to their specifications from scratch. Or do we want to go all the way to magic items as art? When you're buying and selling magic items, you need to spend your time finding a buyer. Those who can afford to buy your magic items may not want what you have. Those who have what you want may be difficult to find or not willing to part with the items. So again, it becomes like buying expensive paintings. Mm -hmm. This is actually the way that it is written in the D&D &D books these days, but almost nobody plays like that because... There's magic shops. Yeah, people mm -hmm. very quickly, and I've had people say, we want to do it in the, the way it's written where you need to find a buyer, but then as soon as they have to go find their first buyer and they don't make the roll, they're like, can there please be magic item shops now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think the world we've been talking about with magic being relatively unknown doesn't make a lot of sense for there to be just shops hanging around. Um, so then artisans would mean like, you might know that there is an artificer or a wizard and you go to their tower and mm -hmm. you tell them you'd like this. And, yeah. or, and you might be able to sell your plus one sword to them, but it won't be as much as it quote unquote should be yeah. rules as written because they go, but, yeah, I can reuse yeah. this. Then again, so but then it's going to be pawn stars. <laughs> The best I can give you is 40 gold. But then again, one doesn't necessarily preclude the other. Like one doesn't, yeah. those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You might still be able to find someone who treasures magic weapons. Right. Right. And like, and well, it's really expensive for me to go get another one forged. But if you have it, yeah, I'll buy it. Yeah. Like, well, not, the way I would say it is this, uh, this is a scale. If there's magic item shops, there's also artisans and an art world. Right. If there's no magic item shops, there can still be the artisans and there can still be the art world, but you can't have the art and the shops. Yeah. Right. You you can't skip that middle. Right. So it's what's how do you get your magic items? What's items? the max? Yeah, what's your max? I like them as artisans, but again, kind of what we're talking about, it's a bit of a rarity. It's mm -hmm. not like every town is going to have a retired right. wizard who wants to enchant things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But like a big city might have someone who's capable of making masterwork right. items and the, then someone willing to enchant it. Um, there's also the... One of the things pushing me towards artisan is what we were talking about earlier with like kind of having a home region or a home city that we... Having an art... Having like... If we find like a major city that has this artisan that we know and trust, being able to go back and pick up our previous orders and mm -hmm. uh, works fairly well yeah, in the not 
huge world where we're never going back to the same place twice. Right. I think uh, it also kind of makes sense with us doing like, uh, what was it? How do we phrase it? Um, hold on. With magic being uncommon, is like I feel like it'd be harder to buy and easier to sell because like you know if magic's uncommon then you know like if you if you find someone or if you have a magic item it's uncommon people will want it assuming that they have the money and they'll also probably be poorer because of you know because of them not being able to buy and sell in Mm -hmm. yeah with magic being uncommon if there were shops i would assume they are in capital cities where the wealthy gather yeah Mm mm-hmm uh, or yeah, and like finding the small number of like adventuring guilds where their leaders and like their might have ma- mm. a magic weapon. And... Whereas if we're looking artisans, the thing I keep picturing is from the Princess Bride, Indigo Montoya's father. You go, you find this guy, you say, "This is the sword I want." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then instead of paying him, you stab him in front of his son <laughs> with all six fingers. Uh, yeah, as yeah. Artisans, I'm just imagining, like, the magic item artisans, like, we keep going back to Lord of the Rings for obvious reasons. Um, uh, Anduil, like, like, the sort of Elendil, right? Like, it's, we, you can talk about how that is, like, a low or no, almost no magic world, but there is a, a lot of magic. It's just, you know, these powerful mystical forces outside of control of, and, like, there are certain weapons that, like, yeah, but in D&D stats, the Flame of the West is probably magical. Mm-hmm. It is just a better sword forged by the elves. And you get that really cool scene of two elves, like, tag team hammering a sword. <laughs> uh, but, and yeah, like like Riley was saying, like, the central city, like, larger uh, complexes where you might, there's far more likelihood of there being an artist in there but that still isn't a guarantee or even in a world where magic is uncommon it might be the artisan needs to be working at a specific you know at the border of the Feywild. you have to go to the wizard's tower in the middle of nowhere because he can't make magic items unless he's Mm -hmm. yeah and i think too i think part of it is uh for some people when they're like, well, I have this plus one shield and I just, I spent 2,000 gold on it. I expect to get 2,000 gold. Or 1,000 well, gold back. That's, or 1,000 gold back. I think for us, I, I I guess for myself, I'll speak for myself. I'm fine with it being like, no, nobody wants your thing. Yeah. Or and people want it, but they've no. got 15 gold. Yeah. And it's like, cool, I actually really like you and I don't want you to be hurt. So yeah, I'll take your 15 gold and every time I come in here, I get a free beer. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> or or yeah, just like you were saying, people complaining about, can there just be a magic shop? Just carry your stuff. <laughs> Go to the next town. We're going to be... Or buy a house and then you store your stuff there and this is like the shield that you eventually give to your kid when they start their adventures. Yeah. Is this going to be like Fallout for me where my character drags themselves to the <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Just to like dump off spoons and cans. I see we play Fallout the same. Yes. Oh I have to play it's... a... I don't use strength for anything except carrying all the things I must have. <laughs> um. behind this baking powder. These cans are aluminum. (laughs) 
least you have a use for them in four. <laughs> Watching me play Fallout 3 was the worst. <laughs> Would you pick up anything worth at least five times its weight? No, no that wasn't a that. rule. Oh. It was anything that was worth a thing. Oh, <laughs> like, can I sell it for at least one cat? That's 20 pounds. Yeah, but it never makes you stop walking. <laughs> TJ would come in and he'd just see like a slow moving landscape. <laughs> he'd be like, God damn.